0: Hello, this is Aaron Eckhart, and you are listening to Center Stage with Mark Gordon, the beautiful one and only Mark Gordon. Welcome to Center Stage. My name is Mark Gordon. On this show, we're going to talk about a new film called What Lies Below with the director, Braden Dummler.
1: Center Stage, Center Stage, Center, Center, Center Stage. Center
0: Stage. something happened when you were very young that served as the inspiration for this film now tell me about that
1: when i was about five years old uh, my first ever crush was on my stepmother her name is sandy she's one of my best friends now but she loves to regale strangers about when i was a little five-year-old kid and she used to be cooking dinner and i would come over and pull on her sleeve and say "Uh, sandy you should chase me around and try to tickle me And she would oblige and she would chase me around the little apartment and tickle me. It was all cute and adorable. We can laugh about it now. But I thought in my head, I I said to myself when I was thinking of this script was, what if the roles are reversed? What if Sandy were a man and I was a little girl? Then all of a sudden you get into this inappropriate, maybe controversial, maybe gray area of what should be done and what shouldn't be done. And that was kind of the start to the drama of the film. As far as the horror aspect of it, I had already always had this image in my head of this light coming down from the sky and hitting a person's chest. And I'm sure that's borrowed from somewhere, but for whatever reason, I was obsessed with it. And I kept asking questions about that. You know, Who is that person? What is that light? Who is watching them? What's their relationship to them? And that's what eventually allowed me to synthesize the little personal story with the horror narrative. The way we imagined it was, it was to start off at this saturated, glowing, blossoming family drama, and then slowly deteriorate into this gritty, desaturated, dark
0: nightmare. You talk about theory, the importance Mm -hmm. of theory, film theory is that just by looking at film you're extrapolating that theory or is it really you go to school and you study and what did film theory teach you to be a good filmmaker
1: yeah so uh, i went to undergrad and i and i actually was a hockey player most of my life so i'd never really been introduced to film theory and when i took a freshman class of history of, of cinema with a professor named todd mcgowan he made me fall in love with the material. He was so charismatic. He was so interesting. And film theory is, is really just a study of film and how it functions and how it works. The best way to, to interpret it is that it teaches you the language of film. It teaches you the particular accent and context, and then you are allowed to use that language to shoot your own movies, hopefully. One of the theories we we talked about was the male gaze, which was really popular in Hitchcockian films about how the man was the looker and the woman was the object of desire. And in this film, what we did is we attempted to kind of reverse that to make Libby the looker and John Smith, the object of desire. And that's why you sometimes see her looking and him pieces of him, his, his hip his smile, his eyes, never a full figure until towards the end of the film when he starts to reverse of the power structure. He is in the background, out of focus, and yet we still can't we still can't take our eyes off of him. And it's because we've developed that pathology in your brain to look for him, to look at him. So when he's in the backdrop and he's slowly approaching out of focus. Even though he's not supposed to be the center of that image, he is somehow the center of that image, despite that. It's like that, that train wreck that you can't look away from, or that car wreck that you can't stop look at. In that way, we created a home fatale, which was a, a subsequent result of the male gaze back in the day, was the femme fatale, so we created our home fatale, so to speak.
0: Well, the way you describe it, it's, it's almost this notion of the objectification of... Him. Normally, we see the, it's the objectification of women, but right. this it's, is it's
1: the objectification like this fetishiz- of this of parts of bodies that we do, and we still are guilty of this in our media. But it is a tactic that we do to sexualize, and we did this with John Smith because he is the object of desire of the film. That's that's that was his intention at the outset. It's what awakens Libby, who's a more reserved, more composed, more introverted person and kind of gives her her first sexual awakening, so to speak, as a 16 year old girl.
0: There are some disturbing images in your film. Did uh, they ever haunt you as you were making it?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, You know, I I don't know about haunts me because when you look under the hood of, of a film, it's hard to be scared by it uh, in a sense. I think it unsettles. Uh, me, I still look back on the boat scene as one of those scenes that I hope I can rewatch in ten years and still go, man, that worked, you know. And it's funny because I, I do relate to that scene in the sense that it was actually inspired by the first time my father told me about the birds and the bees. He took me out on this little inflatable raft in the middle of a lake near our house. And our legs are touching. My dad's 6'4". He's a big dude. (laughs) Our legs are touching. We're face to face. And he is telling me intimate details about, you know, sexual intercourse. And and that was my introduction to sex. And I was 13 years old at that time. So I was well aware of it. Needless to say, that awkwardness that I need to get out of this boat and swim to shore immediately very much was infused into that particular scene. And I hope it functions like that.
0: Did you ever think that your childhood experiences would end up in a movie.
1: You know, it, it's funny because people always say how you you write yourself, you write about yourself. I, I think that's true, but I also think we, we can't give into our own vanity to a degree and we have to realize how boring our everyday lives are, you know, more or less. But there are tidbits in them that are interesting. I truly believe that people relate to specifics more than they do generalities. So, when you feed into those specifics, when you really get into details, you know, like the arm scratch that Michelle always asks for Libby, I doubt there's anybody who watches this film that's ever asked somebody to scratch their arm necessarily, but they understand the need for validation, the need for someone to co- confirm their love for you. And as a result, I think that's how you create empathy. So to answer your question, I never foresaw my life interesting enough to be in a movie, but I'm happy to take the details that I learn along my journey in life to really shape narratives into something that other people can relate to.
0: Well, the boat scene is pivotal because it's uh, it shows that uh, our character is becoming a woman. And that's in some ways what uh, Smith is looking for.
1: Yes. Absolutely. And when I was going into the film, I was somewhat intimidated by writing a, a female driven narrative. I have three sisters, a girlfriend, a mom, a stepmom. I talked to all of them. I read, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. I read Age of Miracles by uh, two incredible female authors, Judy Bloom and Karen Thompson Walker. And I learned through that process how important to a, a young girl, uh, her period is. Like it's, it's, it's a real coming of age. It's, it's a big moment in her life. I never saw that as the first time uh, Libby menstruates. I, I simply saw it as it was still relatively new to her. And that's why it made it even more awkward for her because little girls are taught that this is taboo, that this isn't a natural part of life. So that's why I think it functions the way it does
0: men don't really make that transition from boy to man. We don't have a, a signifier that takes us into that space.
1: Yeah, it's it, it's very true. There there really isn't something that you can pinpoint as a moment that guys finally become men. And so, yeah, I I always saw the film as kind of a coming of age, so I needed to add aspects of that that would show that Libby's at that transitional part of her life. Yeah, I think it's intrinsic to the to the piece.
0: So I was reading in the, uh, the press notes that you just didn't want to do a horror film, but you wanted to do family drama, horror, add all these different elements to it. That seems to be uh, very challenging in itself, huh? I think
1: it's so interesting when you can take a film and erase an element of it and it still functions. Hopefully in our film, even if you took out the horror, even if you took out the thriller element, the suspense, there's still something compelling about the characters and the drama evolving in front of you. You know, I write all the time, try to just write as many scripts as I possibly can. And I'm always looking for stories that they can survive without one element, but they're better because all of the elements are together.
0: And one thing about your film, even though it's in the horror genre, there's not senseless violence. It's not uh, torture porn. It's more on that psychological bent and I think it's what makes it so terrifying are the situations that the characters find themselves in that sense of hopelessness or entrapment Mm. or dealing with an unknown. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think even at a, at a, at a baser level, it's having something like you're used to, like she, she comes home and her, her mother is, has this new boyfriend. And that's a dynamic that is a little unnerving because you want to just bond with your parent, but now there's a stranger in the house. Mm. And I grew up with a single mother and I always felt a little bit weird when some man would come by the house and now all of a sudden he wants to be part of our family. It's a very, very awkward dynamic.
1: It absolutely is. And, and I am fortunate to have a a stepfather who I love very much now, but yeah, when they first step into your lives, you go, who is this person? I mean, we're taught as men to be protective of the women in our lives. You know, that, that's something that's ingrained and indoctrinated into us, Uh, even though they're more than capable, women are more than capable of handling themselves, but this is something that we as men are taught. And so when, a, when a, a man walks into our mom's life, we're obviously suspicious. And, and I think that relates uh, to Libby's character because she tends to be more the adult in the relationship with her mother. I mean, her mom is very flamboyant, over-the-top, rambunctious, uh, high-spirited, optimistic. And Libby's much more grounded and in many ways much more mature and so her protective instincts do kicked in to a degree and they kick in even more when she starts to see that John might not be as great as he seems on the surface.
0: It's really quite a, um, a twist that you do in the film. I mean, in watching it, you're going, this guy is a little too perfect. And then we see that uh, as we stick with it, maybe he's not all that he pretends to be.
1: One of the most fascinating things I found in my research before writing the film, I read a book called Untangled by uh, Dr. Damore, I believe. And it was all about the seven stages of female development during their teenage years. And one thing I found really profound that that really blew my mind was how much girls going through uh, their teenage years through high school analyze every decision, analyze every interaction, think about, talk about, discuss, question everything and the ramifications of every decision. And so as a result, I felt that the perfect villain for that was someone that one day felt like he was a perfect person to be around. And the next, he felt like a threat. And if you can constantly push back and forth and kind of gaslight the character to a degree... Uh, and even the audience, hopefully, then you put Libby in that situation where she's going, what is going on? Am I crazy? Is this really happening? And I think that's a a fun trajectory for any protagonist.
0: The film also um, has this notion of love is blind. The mother doesn't see. She can't see through it. She's Uh, just so enamored. I
1: think that Michelle's insecurities really propel the narrative. This is a woman whose void is that her father did some damage on her, he abandoned her to a degree. And I think as a result of that abandonment, Michelle has compensated by needing the validation of others, needing to confirm that other people love her. And so she hugs and she loves and she tries to attack people with her kindness and her affection hoping that they will that she can latch onto them and hold on to them and so once she gets john she's convinced that john and her are together she'll do everything in her power to hold on to that because it comes from that insecurity of abandonment of somebody leaving her and she doesn't want to experience that again and of course that's intrinsic to the film because if michelle isn't committed to john if she isn't willing to fight for him, to latch on to him, then it's a very easy conversation for Libby to have to get him away, get Mm -hmm. her
0: away. This is your first film. Yes, sir. What did you learn about yourself in making this movie?
1: Wow. Um, What did I learn about myself? I learned that I handle pressure well, even though I'm anxious as hell in real life, like in my everyday life. Uh, when it comes to set, set calms me somehow. I, I see it more clearly when I'm on set. Stepping into a feature film is intimidating. You're you are responsible now for a budget and for all these people and all these relationships and all these decisions go into that. If you're not scared by that, then you don't have a pulse. You know, <laughs> I mean it's just intimidating. And so I'm glad to know now that I was able to handle that. And I think I hope that will serve me going forward. And I think the other thing that I learned was that the most important thing about making film is the people involved. Budgets change, stories change, people drop out, they come back in, you know, locations change. But the people, as long as you have good people that believe in the film and believe in the project and are committed to it, you're 80% of the way there. And I think one of the things I'm very proud of is we worked really hard to... Because we had a female-driven story to hire a lot of female crew. I think most of our crew is female, actually, which is rare in cinema, unfortunately. And I think that things like that are so important to creating a story that's authentic, creating a story that turns out as great as it can be.
0: Why horror for your first uh, feature? When I was a kid,
1: I was obsessed with death. I was terrified by it to the point where my dad and my mother had to buy me a little flipbook that explained death and what it meant to life, to a person. And it, it didn't really help the book. <laughs> I'm still scared of it. And as I've grown older, that fear, I, I'm not sure where that comes from, but that fear has manifested itself into an obsession, this morbid fascination that I have. And so whenever I write stories I like stakes that are life or death. I want the audience to go on a journey where they know that this character could live or could die. And I think horror is a great ballpark for that. You know, it it just works with the style of stories I like to tell. And I also think it's, it's horror is an incredible challenge because I think it was James Wan who said, if people see the scenes, they're no longer scared it's a really uh, a challenge for a cinematographer for a director for a filmmaking team to shoot a film without showing the scenes especially when there's so much there's such a lack of dialogue that it's mostly done with with just the lens telling the story and just the acting and if you can pull that off if you're able to captivate people without words then once you have the words it's it's just gravy right
0: it seems like there are a lot of horror films coming out, which is odd because we're in the middle of a pandemic and you would think that people would want to be, have that sense of escapism. Mm-hmm. Why is horror so popular? Maybe we're just all masochists. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
1: know. You know, it was, uh, it was so funny when, when the pandemic first happened, I watched contagion again.
0: Oh my God. I, yeah. You
1: know, I, I, I love that film, by the way, but The fact that I went to that film at the outset of a pandemic, I mean, what's wrong with you to do that, right? (laughs) You know, I think fear is just one of the most organic emotions we experience. And people always interpret fear as life or death, but fear can have so many more manifestations just in our work, whether or not we're going to be able to hold on to our job um, at home, whether we're not going to be able to have a Thanksgiving this year because of the pandemic. You know, uh, you know, that's scary that we have to stay away from our family and hope that they're okay. All of those things, there's so much fear in our day-to-day life. And to a degree, fear is what drives us as human beings. Whenever you talk about characters, whenever I think about a character, the first thing I think of is what is their innermost, deepest, darkest fear. And once you figure that out, once you crack that, like, for example, with Michelle, the fear of abandonment because of what happened with her father, then you can slowly build the personality around that because that's what drives everything, in my opinion. That is the unconscious. That is what Freud was getting at for so long, in my opinion. And I'm a firm believer that that is why we all love horror is because it exploits our darkest
0: emotions which are really our most real emotions. What films informed you as a filmmaker? Well, for this particular film, I
1: watched a ton of female-driven stories. Some of my favorite were Let the Right One In. Um yes. a Swedish horror film, Under the Skin by Jonathan Glazer with Scarlett Johansson. Fish Tank, which is one of... Michael Fassbender's first film, like one of his very early films, uh, was fantastic. For me personally, the influences I have range from Braveheart, which I, I've always loved, to more recently Get Out and Midsommar. I just love movies that linger, I guess is the best way to put it, that, that stick with you, whether it's fear, whether it's hope, whether it's sadness, Braveheart's my, my favorite film of all time. And I still remember after the film was done and the credits roll, we just sat there. My dad and I just sat there and we were just amazed by it. And we just sat in silence for a good couple minutes. And I, I think that's the best compliment any audience can give to a film is just to bask in it after it's done and that's what you always hope for when you're making movies. As a filmmaker, my responsibility when making a horror film is for you to care about the protagonist. I've gone to horror screens, uh, you know, Midnight Madness, TIFF Screamfest, etc., and I've always noticed how horror audiences love to cheer when there's a big kill. And and I appreciate that I get it. I totally understand um, that, But I think my goal as a filmmaker for my career is to create a horror film that that audience loves, but when the protagonist, if the protagonist dies, instead of cheering, they're crying. And I don't think that's unattainable. I think that you can marry those two ideas of scaring people and having them truly care about uh, the person.
0: In looking at the film, what did you like best about the process and what did you like least?
1: Oh man, the best. So I I always feel as a filmmaker, you're kind of chasing the carrot on the stick. I mean, that, that, that is why we make cinema. Cinema is pain. Cinema is torture. Cinema is work. It is not easy. And people under always go, why do you do this? And it's because you're chasing that one moment where it just works. And I still remember we were shooting the living room scene where Michelle essentially, where she uh, has an argument with Libby in front of John. I don't want to give too much away, but it was 11 page day for us, which is a really high page count to shoot in one day. And it was the end of the day. We had three hours to shoot the entire scene with three persons, which is tough to cover. And we set it up and we're all stressed. The whole crew is worried. And once they started performing that scene, everyone just focused, like they were all entranced and you could tell it was working, something was there. And that's a special moment when you share that with the people that are making the movie with you, when everyone feels it in the room, they just know it's working, that's electric. And that's why we make cinema.
0: What is your creative process like?
1: I direct the film when I write it.
0: So it's really
1: focused in on my writing. When I decide that I'm going to like an idea, I read anything I can get my hands on related to it. Any nonfiction, any fiction, I watch any reference movie I can think of. I think for What Lies Below, I probably watched 13 reference films and read four or five books before I even started writing. And then as I'm doing that, I'm always thinking about new scenes, new characters, dialogue, anything interesting, I just write it down. I write it down, I write it down. So once I finally get to the outlining stage, I have all of these scenes in, that are possible, all these characters, all these lines, all these moments. And I look at them and I go, how does this fit into a plot? And I think in that way of doing it, it allows you to be a little bit more organic about the plot. I prefer stories where you can't feel the beats of the story. You don't know what's, what is the inciting incident. I'm not quite sure, but it's working. You know, what is the, the act one break? I'm not quite sure, but it, it's got to be around here. That's great because it shows you that all your scenes are working and all of your scenes are propelling the character in a certain direction. And I think the way to do that is to, to actually think of the scenes outside of the plot first. Just think of cool scenes and then try to funnel them into some sort of linear narrative.
0: When you're writing a script... How do you know when it's time to put it on the screen? How do you know? Is there a, is there a point where you say, I, I just have to move forward with this?
1: Man, I, I wish I knew. I don't think there is a perfect answer, and I don't think film is perfect. I think every draft could probably use another rewrite or perhaps it's had one too many rewrites. You just, you just never know. We have this quest for perfection in film, which is ultimately elusive. We're never going to make a perfect film. It's just not going to happen. It doesn't exist. And that's, what's so fantastic about filmmaking is that you can't master it. You can just learn every time you do it. And so I I would say that when you're happy with the script, if you read a script and go, this works, then it's time to move on to the next script try to get that one made, but move on to the next script. And that's kind of my process is when I read a film and I go, this is working, maybe I have a few tweaks here and there, but other than that, I don't have anything that is standing out to me. And then I put it away. I, I, I lock it in a, a drawer. I don't come back to it until I write two more or three more, you know? I have this stockpile of scripts as a result, which I'm hopeful to get out there once this film releases. The only answer is w- when you're happy with it, then it's probably a good time to, to step away from it um, because at the end of the day, you're probably always going to get notes from producers and agents and managers and, and uh, studio heads and, and all these people. So you might as well wait until those come in because they can be enlightening and they can definitely, definitely help. And you don't want to be going back and forth on your own when you'll ultimately get an outsider's perspective that'll be even more helpful.
0: What did you ultimately learn from making this film and how will you take that to the next movie?
1: I think the thing I, I I learned is how the value of cast performances in this film are so special to me. Between Mina and Trey and Emma and Haskiri, they just brought it every single day on set. I was so thankful to have them. And I know that even if it takes extra time, I will always be meticulous about cast because I've realized how valuable, how incredibly valuable. I always knew it was valuable, but this is just next level for me. Um, I think also I just learned in in general, surround yourself with good people that believe in it. That's really all you can do because obstacles are going to happen. Stuff is going to hit the fan, you know. I don't know if we could swear on your, your uh, cast here, but uh, you know, if things are going to go wrong. It's film; that's the nature of it. And you need to know that the people in the trenches with you, the people that are battling for that film, for that story, are just as committed, just as focused, and just as optimistic as you are. That's the most important thing.
0: Just a reminder, What Lies Below is currently streaming online, on digital platforms, and video on demand. For more on Center Stage, visit stageandscreen.com. And hey, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Until next time, this is Mark Gordon, and I'll see you, Center Stage. Center Stage, Center Stage,
1: Center, Center, Center Stage. Center Stage. Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon. <laughs>